Okay, Isaiah time. Isaiah chapter uh, 10 and 11 is where we're looking at today. If you want to turn over there. If you're new or if it's been a little while, we are in the middle of studying the book of Isaiah. Uh, one of the great prophets, one of the major prophets as he's called in uh, theological circles. And um, by way of review, I want to just do a couple of things. Um, it's so important that we keep the big picture in view as we get into the minutiae of the details of Isaiah. So uh, let me just remind you, uh, as we talk today about the branch of Jesse, that will be uh, the main focus of our conversation, picking up last time. Let me just remind you of the three themes. Uh, and if you're new to the book of Isaiah, you will find, like many Christians, it's not an easy book to read. Uh, there are chapters that we love, like Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, and those, those are great, and we love those. Uh, but there's a lot of chapters that are really difficult, and, and it's just like, you know, who's talking, and who are we talking about, and uh, what on earth does this mean? And, and part of that is it is poetry, and uh, I don't know how you did in poetry. I failed poetry in school. I have no gift for poetry, and I despised it, truth be told, until God saved me and then showed me that he inspired a whole bunch of poetry in the Bible, so I better start paying attention at least uh, to biblical poetry. But it's difficult because it, it's not straightforward. It, it's language that is metaphorical and, and uh, um, uh, uses symbolism and, and things like that. Uh, but one thing that will help you, and I want to try to be uh, your navigator as we go through the book of Isaiah, is to recognize that there is a pattern to the book. And, and the pattern that you need to see, if we can just review this, uh, some of you remember this from last week, some of you this may be new, is there are three major themes that are going on right now. And at any given moment, this is what Mr. Isaiah will do. Without telling you, he will change the subject. And uh, we've called him the ADHD prophet because he's just going to ping from one subject to another. And if you're not ready for that, you're going to be three, four verses in. You're going to go, what on earth am I reading? I thought we were talking about this other thing. So as you're reading, keep these three themes in mind. Most of your English Bibles will give you some sort of headings that may give you a little bit of an indication when there's a major subject break. But just be looking for that. And so this is a... um, uh, an example of how he jumps around. Look, in chapter 7, 1 to 9, he's talking about the warning and the threat of judgment. Uh, that's, that's really the main purpose of the book, right, is that uh, there is a threat of judgment because God's people are in rebellion against him, and so the prophets get dispatched to warn them and to call them back to repentance. And if they don't repent, of course, God's judgment is coming. And then right in the middle of that section, in one verse, chapter 7, verse 3, he's going to say, but wait, there's hope. Because I'm going to preserve a people. And then he goes right back to talking about judgment in chapter 4. So, so that's the sort of uh, uh, pivoting that our prophet friend here does. And then, of course, the, the third uh, theme is the hope of a future king. So warning and judgment, the fact that God's going to preserve a remnant, and the hope of a future king. And you say, well, why would God inspire a whole book about this? Because in the middle of all this, we see God in what's going on here. So, so let, let's do a little review and see how you're doing, okay? Because the point of this is not just a history lesson. The point of this is a theology lesson. We're learning about God along the way here. So what might we learn about God when he continues to say, if you don't repent, I'm bringing judgment and punishment? What might we, what might we learn about God uh, from that reoccurrent theme? Okay, he's just. What's that? He hates sin. Have you noticed that as you read your Bible, God takes sin exceedingly seriously? Um, 
And in our culture, people laugh at sin. They scoff when you've, have you noticed this? You even bring up the word people scoff at you, like, you know, that, that's so old and outdated. And, and yet the thing we see in the Bible over and over and over again is God takes the violation of his laws very seriously, doesn't he? And, and what does that do? Like, if, if we see that getting pressed in on the people in Isaiah, now these aren't just random people, these are God's people. And God is threatening judgment of his own people, which means God is not partial, is he? There, there's no favoritism here. It doesn't matter if you're in the line of the Israelites. If you choose to rebel, this will happen. Okay. Rob, question? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so not only is God just and he hates sin, we take it seriously, but it's an expression of his love. Yeah, and, and thinking about... Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and the, the parallels in Proverbs that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, right? And. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God's pretty patient, isn't he? I mean, how many decades does the warning go on? It is. It's decades. It's years that God says, you need to repent. I'm serious. You need to repent. So, so th- think of those takeaways. I mean, these are good reminders, right? Could we just ask ourselves individually and collectively, how seriously do we take sin in our life? Right? I mean, that, that, that's part of what the book's trying to say. If God is serious about it, and, and this whole book is putting this in our face, part of what we're supposed to ask is, am I taking my sin seriously? Or am I getting comfortable with things that I've just struggled with and I'm... I'm tempted to give up on or maybe there are things that uh, uh, jerry bridges calls them respectable sins right they're, they're you know there's like the high-handed you know treasonous sins right and then there's the things that everybody does and we don't really take seriously and, and i think uh, what rob said is true too that that even when god brings affliction even when he brings hard things into our life designed to train us do we fight against those things and complain and grumble or do we see them as expressions of his love meant to help us and refine us. Um, justice. Does God care about justice? Nod your head. Yes, he does. Okay. We read it in our psalm. Our God is righteous. That's the same word. He's a just God. So if we're called to be his people, and we are called to be like him, to be just, how should we respond when there is rampant injustice in our country, in our state, in our county, right? We, we should not have a casual, yawning sort of reaction when we see injustice happening. That, that, that doesn't reflect the justice of God. In fact, one of the themes we've seen, we'll see it again today, is one of the reasons God's threatening judgment is what are the people doing in regard to the poor and the afflicted and the widows? What are the people doing? They're taking advantage of them. God is going to destroy the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. He's going to take his people and take them into captivity because they're not taking care of the poor people of their day. That's convicting, isn't it? Because we don't often think 
along those lines in terms of what we care about. Notice too, and um, uh, we'll talk more about some of these later on. Uh, For those of you that are new, there are three children mentioned in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And those three children, the names of those three children reflect the three themes. Uh, Isaiah's first son, his name is a remnant will return. And that reminds us of theme number two, the insurance of a remnant. Okay, uh, his name um, is Shear Yashub, uh, back in chapter 7, verse 3. Um, then there's Emmanuel uh, that we read about later on in chapter 7, means God with us. And that's, of course, reminding us of theme number 3. And then there's uh, the name that none of us can pronounce in chapter 8, Macher Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, that is a reference, four words that describe the swiftness and the disastrous nature of the judgment of God that is coming through the nation of Assyria. Okay? So just keep those three themes in mind. And uh, speaking of those three themes, look at where we're at in chapter 10 today. Chapter 10, verse 20. Uh, By way of review, we saw a section on the remnant, right? He's talking about judgment in chapter uh, chapters 10, or chapter 10, verses 1 to 19, we looked at that. And then in verses 20 to 23, again, we see him pivot and to talk about a remnant. It says, and now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And we need to remind ourselves uh, what God is doing. God is not punishing just to punish. God's program is not you did the crime and so you do the time. That punishment is designed by God to train. It's designed to bring about a response. And we see that response again here that these people that were called by God to be in his family would stop relying on other deities and other people. But as verse 20 says, they would truly rely on the one who struck them. Okay, so that's we see something of God's purpose there as he unfolds uh, the remnant, the fact that uh, and by remnant, what, what is what does God mean? When God says remnant, what he's saying is, even though my judgment's coming, I am not annihilating my people. There were all there will always be people that repent and there will always be this small group of people that walk with God in the midst of it, even today. And Pastor Terry's talking about this in, in Romans right now. There is a remnant of Jewish believers that are around today. Um, now, the Jewish people as a whole have largely rejected the Messiah, haven't they? But there is a small group of uh, Jewish people that have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And that remnant continues till today. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. That is. And I appreciate you saying that. Uh, What Wayne said is is God's fulfilling a promise because that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that God uh, gave the people there. So you're absolutely right. And that, in fact, Paul will come back to that uh, in Romans chapter 11. Okay. so the second thing we saw last time is the destruction of Assyria. This is interesting because God's just told us in chapter 10 that God is going to use Assyria as his instrument of discipline and judgment on his people. And then what's going to happen? Once God has accomplished that purpose, God is going to turn around and he is going to punish the nation of Assyria. You say, well, that's not fair. 
right? He uses them and then punishes them. And, and, and remember, we talked about this. Um, if that doesn't sound right to you, you need to go back and, and read the text again and think about what he's saying. God's punishment comes against Assyria because of their own wickedness, their own uh, sin and their own rejection of God. The fact that God uses sinful people and wicked people and horrible situations to accomplish his purposes is actually something that's amazing to us. And that's what we're supposed to walk away from. That, And this is it. Maybe I can frame it like this. God takes the most powerful and, at that day, wicked people in the known world, and he uses them to accomplish a purpose in his good plan. Remember Assyria? This is, uh, this is a lot of what Jonah talks about, and the Ninevites. And, uh, th- these are not nice people. And God will bring justice against them. But, but the, the, the amazing thing in all this is that before he does that, God is going to take their wickedness and he's going to redeem it to accomplish uh, good in their life. And we see that in verses 24 to 34. Okay, and this is kind of where we left off last time, our section here about hope. Okay, so he's talked about judgment. He's talked about a remnant. Now he's back going to talk about a coming ruler, right? A coming Messiah. And so chapter 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted on the earth. Okay, see, there it is there. The Redeemer comes, the, the King, the Messiah, whoever this person is here, this leader that comes, and he is going to put all things back in their place. Righteousness will reign. The poor will no longer be afflicted. You see, it says there, uh, fairness, the afflicted will be... Uh, they will, he will decide with fairness for the afflicted on the earth. Verse 4, by righteousness he will judge. Uh, verse 3, he doesn't have some preconceived notion. He judges by what his eyes see and his ears hear, meaning he, he judges fairly. And why is he doing all that? Verse 3, because he delights in the fear of the Lord. Verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. This is a very significant leader here we're talking about. And now, the language of the Spirit of the Lord resting on him should resonate with you because that makes us think back to what other king? To King David, that's right. And so uh, there's many things here that make us think of King David. That's one of them. The main thing that makes us think of King David is what else in this chapter? Yeah, the reference to Jesse, right? Who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. And it's interesting here that it says a shoot will bring uh, uh, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. So, you know, we would think that if if the Messiah is supposed to come from the line of David, right? So there's all these kings and it goes back to David. And so the Messiah is just in, remember I'm a pastor not an artist, okay? So, uh the Messiah comes from the line of David, and that's true, and the Bible tells us that. But by talking about Jesse, and it says the Messiah does what? He springs from the root of Jesse. Now, what is he doing there? Because it's true that, that the Messiah does come from the line of David. We know that because 
The Bible tells us that multiple times in the Old Testament, and it's not surprising that the New Testament gospel, Matthew, starts with what? A genealogy. You say, that's not a real exciting way to start a book. Why would you do that? Well, no, it's necessary because that's the whole point. If you're going to identify the Messiah, the first thing you have to do is verify the historicity of his line back to David. So that's why it starts with a genealogy. But but think here, even though it's true that the Messiah comes in a line of kings going back to David, why would... Why would Isaiah say a shoot will bring will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit? Why does it go back to even David's father? I answered this question last time. I just want to see if you learned anything. Okay. Okay, that's true. And Okay. Okay, that's true, and, and you're right in the sense that the covenants are what ensure that this is going to happen, and you're absolutely right. Did you have a thought? I think before that, that it's because the Messiah is like similar to Jesus. Okay, okay, okay. I, I love it when, when people demonstrate that they're listening, so that's good. So thanks, Amber, I appreciate that. Yeah, so, so here's the deal. It's true that the Messiah comes from the line of David, but by using this language that has not been used yet, what, what Isaiah is wanting us to see is that the Messiah is paralleling David in an even more significant way. Not just that he goes, comes from his family, that's true, but by talking about him springing forth from Jesse, the Bible is wanting us to see the parallelism even more clearly between David and the Messiah. You say, well, why is that? It's because of the covenant, just like Daryl said, because the Messiah is going to rule on the throne of King David. He, he is, in a sense, the, the Messiah is, in a sense, the fulfillment of the actual Davidic covenant. It wasn't David, as great as he was, that fulfills the covenant. It's Jesus who fulfills the covenant, and therefore, the writer wants us to see that there's a much closer proximity between David and the coming Messiah than we even anticipated previously. Now, we talked about this last time. We can find New Testament language that describes uh, wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 2, all of those things are attributed to Jesus when he shows up. And um, he's going to rule in righteousness. So we talked about the book of Revelation where Jesus comes in his rule. And we see him fulfilling these things, right? He rules with fairness and righteousness. It's interesting that the language in verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Uh, do you remember the language in Revelation? It's a sword. It's a sword. It, it, is, it is a shock and awe sort of arrival when King Jesus shows up in his awesome judgment attire. So all that's going on. Uh, so we, we looked at the, these sort of things last time, the characteristics of his rule. Um, and then we get to these verses here, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing cobra will play by the whole... The nursing child, excuse me, will play by the hole of the cobra. We just talked about a snake bite. And uh, those of you with little ones, I, I don't think uh, you would want your two-year-old crawling around by the snake's hole, right? And Lacey's shaking her head back there. So, um, 
And uh, Katie, we, we talked about you last week, even though you weren't here, but uh, at Fossil Rim, is this typically where the animals are laid out? Is this kind of what it looks like here? You, know, you got uh, wolves with lambs and leopards with goats. Is that, is that, no, it doesn't, okay, so, so thank you, that's our animal expert. Um, so we look at these verses and we say, something is really odd about all this. And, and we would naturally say something is very wrong, but one of you corrected me last week, and it's true, this is actually really right. This is the way it was supposed to be before the fall. Um, and we can talk about, um, you know, the nature of creation uh, before the fall. And, and it's kind of weird because uh, this is so normal in uh, society and has been for thousands of years that there are animals that eat other animals. And so if you're going to build a zoo, you don't put, for example, uh, wolves and lambs together, leopards and goats together, or they won't last very long, will they? Ah, yes. So the question is, when does this happen? And why does it happen? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, Before we come back to that question, look at verse 10. We got we got to we got to put a bow on this little section here. Then in that day, the nations will resort. To the what's your Bible say? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Verse 1 says, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. But here, verse 10, in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. What is he saying? He's saying that this coming ruler is not only from Jesse... But, (laughs) I love this, Jesse's from him. Did you see that? He's not only the stem that springs forth, the branch that comes from Jesse, chapter 11, verse 1, He is the root of Jesse. Jesse originates from him. And so we say, how is he also the root of Jesse? How how is that true? Well, the New Testament actually helps us a little bit with this. Hold your place here. Turn over to Romans chapter 15. Now, Pastor Terry and I did not conspire to do this. So the fact that he's doing Romans and I'm doing Isaiah, that's just kind of how it came together. But it's interesting Uh, How many times God puts parallels for us to look at here? Now, in in chapter 15, what's going on here? uh, Actually, that looks like a misreference. should be chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 12. Romans 15, verse 12, okay? Paul loves to quote... From Isaiah in, in Romans. And in this context, he's talking about uh, the church and the operation of the church. And um, in starting in verse 7, he mentions this. So we're in Romans 15, verse 7, if you're all there. Uh, Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. So when one of you, uh, when Daryl said a moment ago, that all, a lot of this is in fulfillment of the covenant, that's exactly what Paul is saying is happening. 
This is happening because God is fulfilling and confirming the promise given to the fathers. Verse 9 of Romans there. And for the Gentiles <coughs> to glorify God for his mercy. Okay, so, so remember Paul is writing in Romans to say salvation has come to the Gentiles. It belongs intrinsically to the Jews, but God in his kindness has made it available to all people. And Paul is saying that's not just something God pulled out of a hat in the New Testament. It was actually predicted in the Old Testament. And then he's going to quote some verses here. Verse 9, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. There, there's a place where... Uh, uh, God predicts in the Old Testament salvation coming to the Gentiles. Verse 10, rejoice all Gentiles with his people. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples praise him. Verse 12, and again Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles and in him shall the Gentiles hope. This is interesting. When Isaiah said that there is a coming leader, a coming Messiah, in chapter 7, he said the virgin will be with child and shall give birth to to a son and she shall call his name I'm hearing Jesus and I'm hearing Emmanuel. Which one is it? Uh, he's, uh, Jesus, of course, he's named Jesus in, when he's actually born, and that's true. But his title in Isaiah is God with us, which means this coming ruler is of what origin? He's divine. See, he's not just in the line of David, though in his humanity he is. He's not just parallel to David, though in his kingly rule he is. In his person, he stands over even the father of David as the root because he's none other than God. Isn't that interesting? So Paul helps us to see that that's a fulfillment here of the the gospel coming to the Gentiles because Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, the root of Jesse. He's not just another king. This is the divine king of kings and Lord of lords who come as both God and man in the same person. Okay? So that that's kind of where we conclude here is to see that the Messiah is also the root of Jesse in the sense that he is divine and is none other than God. Now, you need no, put your put your uh, your Jewish sandals on for a minute and think with me about this. What would and, and you can go back to Isaiah if you haven't already done so. Back to Isaiah. What would you think as a Jewish person if a prophet told you the message of God that goes like this? Your king is coming. And he's God, like, like really true, like God himself. And oh, by the way, he's going to save all those pagans too, not just you. 
I would think that this is a very offensive and difficult message for the original audience in light of those two things. I think they would be troubled over the fact that God is coming as their ruler. That might be encouraging to them, but it would be troubling as well. But you understand that they viewed themselves as God's people, and that was part of the problem. They got a chip on their shoulder, and they thought it doesn't matter what we do because we're the chosen people of God. And God says, oh, by the way, when my Messiah comes, he's going to offer salvation to everyone. Now, you don't look nearly as excited as you should about that. And maybe the coffee is weak this morning. Maybe you were up late last night. I don't know what the deal is. You guys understand? If this doesn't happen, there's no hope for us. You know, God is not partial. He He's not one who shows favoritism. He he called a nation, Israel, together and made him his own. And we understand why he did that. But we see here that it was always God's plan to open up the doors of salvation to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. And that's what we see here in Isaiah. Okay, yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things, I appreciate you saying that. One of the things that the prophets will do, even your, your comment about Jonah made me think of this too a moment ago. Um, one of the things the prophets will do if you're reading them closely and if you're really heeding their message is you should walk away with a softer heart toward unbelievers. You really should. Like Jonah and the Ninevites, right? What's that all about? Jonah, you care about your own comfort more than that that whole nation that needs repentance. And here we see God uh, rebuking his people and opening up the doors of salvation to who they would have deemed to be the enemy. And going back to the book of Jonah, that initial revival where the whole nation, the, the, the whole nation of Assyria, well, the whole nation of, of Nineveh, a, a significant city in the nation of Assyria, repents. Lisa, Lisa and I were talking the other day. Do you get frustrated by like by unbelievers like I do? You know, you expect them to act like Christians. Are you guilty of that? Like I am sometimes? Let's remember this point from our older brother in the faith, Mr. Isaiah here, that unbelievers are occasions for our mercy and our compassion and our help as we seek to be faithful to share the gospel with them. Let's not make them occasions of anger and judgment and frustration when they don't act like Christians do. In reality, if we're judging them, how Christian are we acting? And that's so it's kind of like, mm, okay. But let's do that. Let's, let's remember that they're the, they're, they're the mission field, not the enemy, right? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they cannot see the light of the glory of God, which is the image of Christ. What, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's saying that um, are unbelievers sometimes wicked in what they do? Sure they are. Are they accountable to God for that? Absolutely they are. But they're blinded by the God of this world, and that's in part why they do those things. And they need the light of the gospel to help them. So we can get angry and frustrated at them, or we can remember what our mission is. And we can pray for them and try to share the gospel with them. So, 
And I'm, I'm preaching to myself because I, I need to hear that more than anybody. Okay, so let's turn the corner here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And this banner aspect as opposed to roots that all will now see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great point because um, you remember the background of all this is they were demanding a king against the will of God and and that was God responded like that because, you know, they shouldn't need a human king, they have him, right? So we're coming back to that real need that they need to submit to God himself as their king. So thank you for bringing that out. That's good. All right, here we go, guys. Uh, Turn the page, chapter 11, verse 11. And uh, what has our dear friend, Mr. Isaiah, done again? He has once again pivoted out of talking about the coming king, and he's talking about what again? A remnant, chapter 11, verse 11. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain. So he just changes subjects again. Now, here's the thing, and we're going to look at the section here in a moment. Um, What's different about this event than the previous verses that we've looked at regarding the remnant? Look closely at verse 11 and tell me what's different. What's that? It says the second time. Did you say that, Brianna? Hey, we got our our theologian scholar of the day right there, down there in our young theologian section. Good job. Good job. Do you see that there? It says God's going to do, God's going to recover the remnant the second time. Okay, so you got it. Now the question for the class is, what does it mean? What does it mean he's going to recover a remnant a second time? And I'll give you a hint. The context is everything here. Yeah, Ruth, got an idea? I was going to say there's a near and a far fulfillment of this idea of a remnant. Okay. 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 Ruth is uh, so I don't know what it is about like this side of the room, but they're batting a thousand. Okay, so just just saying. Um, you're absolutely right. And, and, and it's not just that there's a near and a far fulfillment. That, that, that's true. But what we're actually reading here is the prophet is saying there's actually a second remnant regathering. There's actually a second event in addition to the remnant he's already talked about. Okay. Now, you've got to think about this because can everybody see the board? I don't know. Can you guys see the board over here? Okay, there's no way that I can really do the whiteboard where everybody can see really perfectly, so we'll just do this, okay? So you've got, I, I, we need to just kind of pull the car over here for a minute and talk about the big picture in terms of the timeline, okay? Because you've got to have the history in your mind or this won't make sense. So you have the nation of Israel, okay? And they're rocking along and they begin to crumble 
under David, actually, right? Remember, David commits sin, and that begins to undermine uh, his ability to rule. And then what happens after that? Rehoboam and Jer- or Solomon, and then that doesn't go well. And then Rehoboam and Jeroboam, uh, what happens? We have a split, right? You've got a split between the northern and the southern kingdom. So that when we come to the book of Isaiah... And you need to get this. If you're if you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, there, there's some history we have to learn as part of the Bible. It's just that's part of it because it's a historical book. So you've got God's people, one nation that's now been broken off into two nations, a northern and a southern. And uh, it's confusing because they don't just use the same terms, right? The northern kingdom is sometimes called the northern kingdom. Sometimes it's called Israel. Sometimes it's called Samaria, the capital city. Uh, so it has different words. The southern kingdom, sometimes it's called the southern kingdom, sometimes it's called Judah, sometimes it's called Jerusalem, the, the capital city there. So you have to kind of keep those two things in mind. So now you've got two nations, and they proceed ahead. Now both of these nations have kings. And remember, at the beginning of our study of Isaiah, we were cataloging some of that, right? Here's the northern kingdom kings, here's the southern kingdom kings, and they're going off. But both of them are leading the people into destruction. So what's going to happen is... There's going to be an event here, and a little bit further, an event here where God brings judgment for both of these nations. Okay? This one, the northern kingdom is going to, their judgment's going to come through what nation? Assyria. Assyria. And the judgment of the southern kingdom is going to come through what nation? Babylon. Okay? And then. As, you know, what happens after that, right? <laughs> kind of like we make some dashed lines here because we're not sure what happens after that. Um, what God is saying is, in the midst of these two judgments, there is going to be a remnant. Meaning, God will preserve people through both of these events. And that's what we've been talking about. There's going to be a remnant. It's not going to be total annihilation that there's going to be a remnant and a restoration. And again, this will continue on. But that's not the remnant we're talking about here. Yes. Okay. Uh, is that first uh, event, is, that has not been fulfilled. The northern five tribe has been scattered among the nations. And that promise will be fulfilled whenever God brings them all back. Right. So, so I appreciate what you're saying. So, so what, what, we've seen in part in Isaiah is that there's a remnant that's going to come out of this judgment that Isaiah is foreseeing here. And so we know like the book of Daniel and then eventually um, uh, in some of the latter prophets where uh, there's a restoration under Ezra and Zerubbabel and those guys, there will be a returning to the land because of this preservation of a remnant. Okay, So that that's in part what Isaiah is envisioning. But you're right in the sense that what we see here, look at this. Let's, let's read it again, okay? Then it will happen on that day, verse 11, that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain. Now, now listen to this, okay? From Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Cush, Alam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the, la- the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines of the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with a scorching wind. He will strike it into the seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left just as there was for Israel in that in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. So the question we have to ask is, is the language here isolated to the returning of the people from Assyria and from Babylon back to the land, as happens later on in the Old Testament? Or is the language here seem to be talking about a broader event? And the fact that he calls it a second remnant makes us think this is a second event. And the, the geographical references here from the four corners of the earth, we're not just talking about Assyria and Babylon, we're talking about all sorts of na- nations, island nations. So if we're understanding Mr. Isaiah correctly here, he's saying that this coming Messiah who is God himself, who is the root of Jesse, corresponds with a regathering of the remnant from the four corners of the earth. Now, are you with me? So, Say that one more time. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Is that when uh, after seventy years mm-hmm. they were brought back through Jerusalem? You can't talk yeah. Jerusalem, and that was in the time of Ezra and them, and that that happened that before this other event up here. That's correct. Yeah. So what I'm what what I think is going on, and you you ask questions. You, if you if you see it different, talk to me. But what I see going on is in Isaiah, we're seeing two events here. One is a localized one where the people come out of Assyria, they come out of uh, Babylon in terms of the the restoration, um, and that happens in the Ezra Nehemiah times, Zerubbabel, um, etc. But what we're seeing here in in correspondence with this coming king. It seems to be a regathering of the Jewish people that is broader and grander than that. Um, so it's not just, you know, the, the regathering in uh, uh, the time of um, Ezra and Nehemiah, but we're talking about something even more massive than that in correspondence with the coming king. There's another reason that we know that this can't, that what he's talking about at the end of chapter 11 can't be this event, and that is they were regathered to the land without a what? Without a king. Okay. Now, just to test our, our theory, okay, and, and we'll just we'll just uh, try to land here with this. Look at chapter twelve. Let's let the context test our interpretation, okay? Right? Because we, we well, we could be wrong, so let's let the context test it, okay? Chapter twelve, verse one. Then you will say on that day, what day? The day when this happens. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, 
For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. You know what that is? Behold, God is my salvation. I'll give you the Hebrew word and you tell me what it is. Yeshua. It's the Hebrew name for Jesus. Okay? It's an allusion to what we're talking about here. For behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That does sound like some of our psalms, doesn't it? There's some psalms that parallel that same language. Now, here's what's interesting. In the first few verses of chapter 12, the you is singular. Okay, we got to go back to our all y'all and y'all conversation. Okay, the you is singular. So, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. It's talking to an individual. It's talking to individual people. In verse 4, the pronoun changes, and now we're talking about you, plural. So, y'all and all y'all, or all y'all and all y'all, or however you want to do it. We've gone from singular to plural. And it's talking collectively now. Collectively, the people say, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds amongst the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known. Where? Throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We have not seen an eruption of praise like this in the whole book. Not yet. And this is the first of several times in the book of Isaiah when we think about what happens in the end. The king comes, the people are regathered in salvation, and there is a party like you've never seen in all of human history. So it seems like chapter 12 confirms our suspicion that what's happening in chapter 11 is not what happens in the 5th century uh, B.C. with the regathering of the Jews from Babylon back to the land, but this is something future, a second remnant as chapter 11, verse 11 states, that happens under the reign of the coming King and Messiah. Now, you wanted a study, right? Remember, you wanted a study that talked about Isaiah, that talked about difficult passages, and talked about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Well, we just did it again here too, didn't we? Okay, all this is coming together. Uh, and, And that's, do you guys like mysteries? You like mystery novels or murder mystery films or whatnot. Isaiah's kind of like that. You've got all these things going on, you're trying to figure out what does it all mean. And when it comes together, you see uh, that what we're talking about here is the coming Messiah, the regathering of his people. And by the way, this should help us because when Paul says in Romans, God has not forgotten his people, has he? We should say, well, no, we read it in the Old Testament. 
That's not something new. That's the affirmation of something old from promises made long ago, like Daryl mentioned, the covenants. Okay. All right. So, um, yes, ma'am. Okay, where are you at now? Twelve what? Twelve one. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, who's speaking? Let's let's back up. Who's speaking? Ultimately, God is speaking through through the prophet, right? Okay. So God is speaking through the prophet to who? That's your question is, who is he talking to? So who is he talking to? Yeah, thank you. So, so that we, we see this in Isaiah before, and that we, we talked about y'all and you and all that. So yes, he's talking collectively to the people as one nation. And that's why he uses the singular. And then when he changes to the plural, he's talking like individually to everybody, uh, in that way. And you'll see that throughout the prophets. That, that's, that's a very common way that the prophets speak using the singular and the plural to, to pivot back and forth. Um, he, well, he, he is talking to the remnant because only the remnant will rejoice in chapter 12 the way that he describes. Um, so yes, he, he's, he's, I guess, looking ahead to say, and then you collectively will rejoice when the king comes and everybody is regathered. Yeah. So you can think of it like that. Obviously there's not, that remnant doesn't exist at the time Isaiah is writing this, but looking ahead, yes, he's writing to the remnant. Is that your question? I think, I think so. Okay. <laughs> hey, she's asking good questions, okay? Let, yeah. Don't get to the, if we say the regathering for Jesus, that's what we're saying when Jesus comes back, that's what we're mm-hmm. saying. Is that the regathering Okay. It's still referring to, at that point, believers of the Jewish nation. Well, okay, so let so let's because you're both you're both sort of right, but in different ways. Okay, so you're right in the sense that you know it is about belief, not just about nationality. But you think about the context of when this is being written, and he's writing to Jews and only Jews at this point. Okay, so we we know that's going to happen, but at this point, he is just talking to Jews that will be restored at that point, contextually. Man, we hit a hornet's nest with pronouns here. This is awesome. Yeah. They got to figure in someplace here for the rapture of the church. Okay. And that's uh, not the second coming of Christ, but that's when he appears in there and calls right. the dead in Christ. And Great question. And then uh, when this happens, it's 
That's correct. I think yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, where does the rapture fit into all this? So I think we're out of time. Uh, just uh, <laughs> close in prayer here, take an offering, and go home. No, um, no, he, no, no, we got, we got to do that, right? Because we're saying, well, this is going to happen, and, and if you know your eschatology, you know there's some events that are going to happen before this. And, and the short answer is this passage is not attempting to be comprehensive in terms of all the events. It's only talking about this one event. But you're correct in that there are events like the rapture that will precede uh, this particular event. The other thing is that the rapture is largely a Gentile event, not a Jewish uh, event, and that's another reason it's probably not listed here. But it's a great question. Great question. Okay? Any other eschatological questions, pronoun questions, stump the teacher questions? Anyone talk about Hebrew weak verb stems? Yes. Um, it's larger than the boundaries today, absolutely, and it does it does spill over into some surrounding nations. That's correct. I'd have to go back and look at the actual boundaries to answer that particular question. What's that? Okay, so that would get into yeah. So yeah. All right, man. We got geography, pronouns, eschatology. Yes, I see that hand. One more question. We got to go. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If, if, if you have questions, come on up afterward and I'll, I'll dismiss the class. Let me pray. I'll, we'll dismiss the class and then. Uh... I have not a question, but a statement. Yeah. Talking about uh, like witnessing to unbelievers. Our former pastor uh, said that uh, not, not in judging unbelievers, but to look at, to view them as unbelievers are just doing and acting like yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Lord, thanks for a great class. Thank you for what you're teaching us. Will you give us a growing love for the lost? Uh, will you remind us that you care greatly about sin and righteousness, that we would respond uh, like you would to the things that go on in our life and in our heart? We thank you that you are working your plan to redeem people and that Uh, that plan will come to pass. Uh, Thank you for the coming Messiah. We know that he has come uh, the first time to do the work of salvation, and he is coming again, as we've we've looked at today. And um, we just stand in awe as this plan comes to our eyes uh, through the book of Isaiah. Thank you for your faithfulness and your compassion and your mercy. Uh, Will you help us to walk with you in confidence of who you are and what you're doing? In Jesus' name, amen.